welcome to this week's Sport Pulse with myself, Aidan Rafferty, and we hope you enjoy what we have for you in the next two hours. We'll have the local, national and international news, as well as that we'll also have some great interviews. We'll have the League of Ireland League of Ireland chat with Luke McQuillan as from Drogheda United social media team as we look back at the FAI Cup on Sunday where uh, where Dundalk bet uh, League of Ireland champions um, Shamrock Rovers and then we'll also have an interview with uh, the, si- the sideline ball with myself and Tommy Dowling and we'll also have the sports management interview as well with Joe Jeffcott from 442 Sports Management Group that and much more so stay tuned for the next hour or for the next two hours next up we have the local national and international sport hello hello how you doing uh, this hi buddy how are you this all oh, right i'll have to send you another one because the music is still no it's all right on. well i'm on now it, oh, yeah. it's working so we're on okay yeah so um yeah so uh, you're very welcome to this podcast uh Pleasure, pleasure to meet you. And I suppose we, we'll start off at the start. And uh, so I suppose, where did your interest in futsal start off? And, uh, you know, what teams did you play for? And uh, what position and things like that? Well, actually, I never played the game of futsal. My, my background was uh, 100% football. And oh, uh, I happened upon futsal by, by chance. I was working as one of the uh, goalkeeper coaches in the the Liverpool FC Academy and the head of goalkeeping at the time was a a gentleman called Billy Stewart who was good friends with the then England futsal head coach Graham Dell. Now Graham was looking for a new goalkeeper coach and he contacted Billy to to see if Billy was was able to sort of join him and and help him but Billy was too busy as was Billy's assistant uh, Tim Dittmer. So Billy uh, approached me. He said, "Look, you know, Grandell's asked me if I know anybody that would would fit the bill. Would be open to going to help him with the goalkeepers." And uh, so I went down to a training camp at Lily Shaw with the England futsal squad. Uh, met Graham, met the squad, had a look at the, the training session, uh, did a little bit of work with the goalkeepers, and that was my first taste of futsal. That was in two thousand and seven. First time I'd ever seen the game, ever heard of it, um, but immediately fell in love with it. And from that moment, um, I knew that I had to be a part of that group. And uh, Graham offered me the role. Um, and I guess, as I say, the rest was history. I was the head of goalkeeping for the England Futsal Squad for over 10 years. So a fantastic uh, honour. But um, yeah, never played it, but fell in love with it immediately. And uh, I'm so thankful and grateful that I got a chance to coach in it, you know. That's it, and I suppose really this this is such a coincidence because uh, I suppose a I'm a Liverpool fan and b <laughs> b I'm like yourself we're, we're we're members of the goalkeepers union as I do yeah. say when when I'm speaking to fellow former goalkeepers or goalkeepers and uh, also from a from a futsal point of view as well um, as you know I'm a sports therapist but um, I also I was also team sports therapist for the Ireland. Foot uh, Ireland diabetic futsal squad where we played in Kiev in the European in the European Championships there last year. So yeah. that was it. That was a great experience, and we yeah. actually played 
England, but that that was obviously the diabetic team, it wasn't the yeah. the full team. But uh, yeah. you know, uh, but my my how I got interested in futsal too was the year before I was involved in senior in the senior six side squad. Right. The Ireland Senior Six Society Squad, and we played in that. We played in the European Championships for that, and mm-hmm. the lads in the and the team actually played play futsal as well for teams in Dublin. And they were telling me about mm-hmm. it. if you ever play it, you'll fall in love yeah. with the game. Just like just like what you had said exactly. from the day I I actually joined the uh, futsal uh, the Ireland futsal diabetic team. You know, it, it has been a, it's been a great experience. Yeah. It's been uh, there's a lot of it, it's a very technical it's a very technical sport isn't it There's a lot of kind of nitty gritty things in uh, futsal yeah. that isn't in the the normal eleven aside. Mm-hmm. But I suppose a lot of the players now that are playing professional in eleven aside now across Europe and around the world they probably I think you know sport I think more so in you know in Spain and Uruguay and all these continental countries that's how the that's how the kids start off playing futsal, and that's kind of key in their touch, in their first touch, and I suppose speed of passing and accuracy, and and all the components and essential skills that you need. But they're they're not developed overnight. No, well, of course, in in most uh, nations, futsal is their their go to um, smaller format of the game. You know, obviously in England. Um, you know, I'm not so sure in Ireland, but uh, our, our go-to is five-a-side. But um, most of the world play futsal and have done for for years, for generations. So when you look at some of the fantastic players that are currently in, in, in our world football, the likes of of Messi, Ronaldo, you know, and, and, and some top goalkeepers, the likes of Edison, De Gea, you know, these guys have all played futsal. It's been part of their upbringing. And, uh, you know, what it's given them is an idea and a, an opportunity to to play a, a sport that puts them into difficult situations. It puts them into high pressure situations all the time, having to deal with the ball under pressure, you know, having to think quickly, having to move quickly, having to play quickly. Um, and, and obviously working on, you know, multiple touches and lots of touches of the ball in quick succession, um, you know, and they're, they're always involved and, <clears throat> and active in the game of futsal. So it's a great teacher of skills, of, of speed of thought, speed of movement, speed of action. Um, but obviously, my focus was always on the goalkeeping side, and yeah. there are transferables from from futsal to football and, and vice versa. But the, the skill set of a futsal goalkeeper is, is is very specific to the format. So, you know, I had to quickly learn that yes, you can use certain things from your your goalkeeping defaults, I guess, in terms of the the eleven side format. But the skill set of a futsal goalkeeper is quite specific. So. I had to learn very quickly that the role of the futsal goalkeeper is hugely important, but the skill set that they need is um, is quite different to that of a of a mainstream football goalkeeper. So I had to upskill myself and, and learn what the role of the goalkeeper was, and and therefore what how I had to structure their training sessions to befit what they would then go on to do and um, the situations they would face in games. So uh, it was a great learning curve for me, to be honest. Um, in terms of my knowledge, and uh, I'm very thankful that I was given that opportunity. That's it, and it, it is kind of more. I've seen like from uh, when I got involved in in it and as well uh, last season, which was my first involvement in it, and seeing how it all operates is, um, you know, that there are technicalities for the goalkeeper as you just mentioned, as in like you know if the ball is passed back, 
they can only have it for a couple of seconds or you know it's very technical they, they don't have much time on the ball but also I suppose as you just said there the other things are you know there, there's other things like I mean the, the goalkeeper in um, in futsal is nearly a fly keeper as well they can come actually out to midfield and nearly beyond they're, they're like an extra player outfield compared to the 11 aside where the goalkeeper tends to stay inside their box that's right. Well, it's, and of course, you know, like I said, the, you look at some of the skill sets of a futsal goalkeeper and, and <clears throat> you can see that, um, you know, those goalkeepers that may have played futsal um, in the modern game now um, can easily use the transferables from futsal into mainstream football. For instance, you know, the goalkeepers now in the modern game use a technique called blocking. You know, they use a low block and a high block and where they use the, the body in a certain shape to, to block the ball from going through to the goal. You see a lot of goalkeepers now making saves with the feet, you know. So we talk about the split save in, in futsal goalkeeping. Now, you know, that you see a lot of goalkeepers now using the, their feet to make saves in mainstream football. Um, and of course, you know, distribution. So when you look at the amount of times the goalkeeper in futsal has contact with the ball, either from throwing the ball or passing the ball, it's a fantastic tool to... Um, get the goalkeeper accomplished in in being able to not only receive the ball, control the ball, but also to think quickly as to where they're going to distribute the ball next, whether that be with the hand or with the foot. So, you know, you look at those aspects and they're fantastic um, training tools for goalkeepers in the modern game if you want to use futsal as a training tool. But of course, you know, futsal is a, a sport in its own right. So we mustn't forget that. And uh, the skill set, again, like I said before, of a goalkeeper is very specific to that format of the game. Um, you talk about the fly goalkeeper, yes, you know, very much so. Um, the goalkeeper can be used as like an extra player. So at times they do become the fifth player in, in futsal, as in football, they, they become the 11th player sometimes. But of course, you see in futsal a lot of the time, it won't be the goalkeeper that becomes the fly goalkeeper, it will actually be an outfield player Does it, that is designated as the goalkeeper, that then will go on the court to actually play as an outfield player and a goalkeeper. So that adds to the dynamic. And uh, it's quite interesting when you get asked to develop the, the fly goalkeeper, who's not a natural goalkeeper, but they need a little bit of goalkeeping skill because at times when they're playing as a fly keeper, they will be expect, expected to, to defend the goal and keep the ball out of the net. So that's quite an interesting uh, side of the game, which I found uh, you know great to be a part of. That's it. And like, I mean, I saw the manager there with the, the futsal team and uh, you know it's very it's a very tactical game as well maybe more so than people think it's not just about oh just having the crack and going out there and playing there, there are a lot of kind of finer points and very tactics that, that you know even down to formation and what each player does in that formation because it's very kind of divide each position in that in that formation as a specific role you know and I suppose if that player doesn't do it right, even the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper as well, you know, if they don't play their part or they make a mistake, a mistake, you know, a mistake can be punished very quickly. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, and again, look, you know, there's five players in the futsal team. <clears throat> so the goalkeeper makes up 20% of the team, in essence, um, compared to sort of 9%, 8 or 9% in a, in a mainstream 11-side game. So, they play a pivotal part, and it's a huge part. You know, most teams will will play with a with a back pivot, a defender, and two wingers and a front player. 
that will vary. You know, some some coaches play with different formations. Some will play with a two and two. Some will play with a, you know, a freedom for all four to play wherever they want to play. So um, I think that's the interesting thing about futsal is that you don't really position specific your players. Um, they might have a certain specialism, but they've got to be adept, adept and uh, capable of playing in all parts of the court because that's that befits the game. They will end up, you know, at times they might feel that they're more of a defensive player, but at times they'll end up playing as a top pivot, the front player. So they've got to be capable of doing that purely and simply because of the rotations that you have in futsal. So, yes, it is a very tactical game, but I find it fascinating. A little bit like basketball or, or you know, games of that ilk. Um, it is very, very technical, but also fantastically tactical and very strategical when, you know, you find uh, coaches try to be very clever to outwit each other. It is a fantastic sport. That's it. And I suppose looking at looking at goalkeepers kind of, and, uh, you know, as us being goalkeepers or former yeah. goalkeepers and mm-hmm. uh, being, like I'm a Liverpool fan and you work with, with the Liverpool goalkeepers and things like that, in the past, I suppose mm-hmm. we couldn't let the we couldn't let it go by without. Um, well, f- from from our point of view, is you know the admiration for uh, Quibin Kelleher is doing excellently at uh, at the moment. And um, when you see the way, like he, he he had played, you know his last three games, you know played mm-hmm. against Ajax, played brilliant, made some absolutely brilliant saves. Yeah. Not so much to have done, and I made this in other interviews as well, didn't have as much to do maybe against Wolves the other night uh, on Sunday. But uh, still, when called upon, he was very solid. You know, he can read the game. He knows when to come for the ball, when to mm-hmm. punch it. His distribution is very good. His kickouts are good. You know, yeah. I suppose, you know, he, he can block as well, just like, I suppose, some yeah. of the things that you, you have mentioned there. As a goalkeeper, that are transferable. But uh, what's yeah. your what are your thoughts on Quivin Keller? And do you think that maybe he he would have played um, he would have played futsal somewhere along the line as well as part of his development as a keeper? Because oh, well, he possibly, yeah. possibly he, he seems to be able to come out. He seems to be able to come out yeah. and uh, do all the things like nearly like nearly like a sweeper in, right. in a sense. Yeah, I think I think look that that's the modern game. I think that's the. The way that goalkeeper coaching is evolving now, the goalkeeper coach at Liverpool, John Achterberg, is a very dear friend of mine. John and I have known each other for years. We've done many courses together, delivered many workshops together, and uh, we're really good friends, you know. So I'm really pleased for John because he's been at the club a long time. Um, obviously, he went through a bit of a tough patch when, uh, you know, he had the situation with Carrius, but then Alisson has come on the scene and, um, you know, he's performed fantastically and been the catalyst, really, for. Liverpool's success over the last couple of years. You know, I think they've found the right man now. Um, but yeah, I think he's, he, the young man's done really well. And, and uh, you know, he sees the opportunity, but he, he goes to show in the things you've just mentioned there. It's not just about the goalkeeper being technically gifted. I think they have to be tactically aware. And, you know, you talk about staying in the game and not having a lot to do. So they have to be psychologically balanced. They have to be in connection with the game all the time. You can't switch off for a moment. And, and that's why I love futsal as a sport in terms of developing goalkeepers because in futsal, the goalkeeper is always involved. They're never not in the game. They're always playing some part. And because of the, the closeness of the game and the smallness of the court, there's never a, a long period of time when the goalkeeper is not actively involved or psychologically thinking about their role within the team. So, you know, when we think about the five elements of development, you know, technical, tactical, physical, psychological, social, 
you know, you can look at all of those elements and in, in futsal and, and obviously in the mainstream game, you can draw on those um, learnings from both aspects of the game and actually develop your goalkeeper with a really holistic approach, you know, and, and think about all of those different elements that make up a top-level goalkeeper. You know, it's not just being good at catching or diving or, or passing the ball. Do they understand the game? Do they understand their role within the game? You know, are they robust psychologically? Are they a good learner? You know, can they manage mistakes? Do they have a good connection with their teammates? And, and of course, physically, you know, are they capable of, of making a block shape? Can they do a split save? Do they have that flexibility and that speed of movement? So all of these things now, in terms of the way we work with goalkeepers, they're hugely important in terms of their development. And as coaches, especially goalkeeper coaches, it's really challenging for us now. But the importance is that we upskill ourselves to try and be as understanding of those five elements as we possibly can. We might not become experts in them, but we can certainly upskill ourselves to know enough about them to be able to help and enhance the skill sets of our goalkeepers that we work with, you know? That's it. And I suppose really it's very interesting about, uh, you know, how it all operates because I suppose your involvement in the England side uh, in futsal as well, I suppose, what are the tournaments you get involved in? Is it just kind of like in the 11 aside where there's World Cup and European Championships? Is there are there other tournaments? Are there qualifiers? What way does all that run? I suppose for for the international yeah. teams. Yeah. So over the years, obviously, I was I was in I was with them from 2017 to late 2016. So um, you know, nearly 10 years, as I said, and um, you know, I went to I think four European Championship qualifying tournaments, three World Cup qualifying tournaments. You know, I toured the world with the squad. You know, we went to play international games in countries, nations like Qatar, Libya, uh, all over Europe. You know, we spent a week in Spain with one of the top Spanish teams, El Pozo. One of my best friends, um, you know, that I'm still in uh, much contact with now, he's um, one of, probably one of the best goalkeepers ever lived, the Spanish goalkeeper Paco Sedano, who I brought over to England a couple of years ago to do a, a futsal goalkeeping workshop. What a lovely man, Paco. He's, he's now retired from playing the game professionally. He was Barcelona's captain and goalkeeper for many years. Um, and he now works for the Spanish Federation trying to um, help uh, give coaches a better understanding of how futsal can help develop the footballer. So, you know, futsal was an amazing opportunity for me, a fantastic sport to be involved in. I've travelled around the world. I think I did over 150 games with the England senior squad. Um, you know, across European and um, and world and world championship qualifying tournaments. You know, did home nations tournaments against Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. So you know, listen, I loved every second of it. Learned so much from it, uh, but clearly understand that it is very much a sport in its own right, a wonderful sport. And I'm so happy that I had those ten years to be a part of it and gain all the experiences that I did. That's it, because I suppose really. You know, it is. Um, you know, it's like like every sport. There are sir, there are so much opportunities that you can mm-hmm. get from from us, and uh, yep. you know, it, it it is very interesting. But I suppose your thoughts is it actually um, an Olympic sport as well, or is it just like is it played in the Olympics, or is it just purely the the usual kind of tournaments, the qualifying tournaments, and mm-hmm. the Euros and the 
yeah. the World Cup. No, no, there has been a big push to try and get futsal into the Olympics. Unfortunately, at the minute, um, they're not including it, which is a shame because I think it would be fantastic for the uh, for the Olympic Games. Um, I think there was talk of it becoming um, part of the Commonwealth Games in the near future. I would hope that that is the case. Um, but at the minute, we have um, obviously we have the World Championships, which I guess is like the World Cup of futsal. We have the European Championships, and obviously each continent has their own championship. So, you know, South America, um, Asia and so on have their own um, tournaments as we're doing football. And of course, you have, um, you know, you have professional leagues in the likes of Spain, Italy, Japan, Russia and and, and other nations. Um, So we do have a Champions League as well. Um, So we do have a Champions League of futsal, the same as we're doing futsal in football. And um, the current holders are Barcelona. So Barcelona Football Club actually have a, um, a futsal team that belongs to them. It belongs to the Barcelona sport family. And their um, their arena, their stadium is literally right outside the Camp Nou. So uh, I've had the, uh, the the pleasure of of going to both arenas to see futsal games and football matches. Um, you know, so I've seen Messi play a couple of times live and, and actually dropped in and seen the crowds of eight, nine, ten thousand watching futsal in uh, in the Spanish league of futsal. So again, you know, the sport is recognised worldwide globally. It's recognised by UEFA and FIFA. Um and it is, you know, uh, their format of the small sided game and, and what a fantastic format it is. That's it. And I think there's um you know there are there are a couple of obviously there's UEFA and FIFA, but there's other um there's other associations in addition to them as well, isn't there? Yeah, well, like I said, each um, each organisation, each, each continent has its own, um, mm-hmm. you know, governing federation. You know, so yes. again, like South America have their own uh, governing federation. Asia will, um, Australasia, and obviously Europe work under oh, UEFA. Yeah. So they all they all come together. They all um, they all host their own championships on a, a biannual basis. I think it is every couple of years, and then obviously the World Cup will be every four years, as far as I remember. Um, but, you know, professionally, it's played in certain nations, not every nation. Um, you know, I think it would be a fantastic opportunity if ever that happened in the UK. I can't see it at the moment because the FA in England have uh, just cut the funding for futsal, which isn't great. Um, but it's happened now. And uh, I think the futsal family in the UK has to move forward and maybe go alone. So go it alone. So let's just wait and see what that brings up, you know. That's it, and of course, um, you know, from from the groups that we're involved in as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, WhatsApp and that. There's a the goalkeeper, and also in, um, you know, on uh, on other on other platforms, we yes. we know Reza Reza as well. Yeah. You know, he's a goalkeeper as well. A lovely, a lovely guy, a fella yeah. that I talk to on a regular basis. He 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 plays a huge part in in the goalkeeping side as well over over in England more so. I can think the London area. Yeah. And even his daughter is a, a goal a budding goalkeeper as well. I can see pictures of her playing, um, play, playing as well, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, the the goalkeeping the goalkeeping side of uh, futsal is uh, is becoming very interesting as well. Hey, pal, we'll just crack on, yeah? 
Um, yeah, so I was just saying there about Reza as well over in England yeah. around London there. He's playing a huge part in coaching and futsal and his daughter is his daughter's a goal a budding goalkeeper as well. So yeah. and uh, you know, we're I'm a member of many of the, the groups online as well and things like yeah. that. So it's great to yeah. see videos of um I suppose if people go on, on Facebook and all that they'll see how, how brilliant what a what a brilliant game it actually is yeah, and the skill that the outfield players and goalkeepers have mm-hmm. and all that. It might inspire uh, you know a growth certainly like in Dublin there's loads of clubs in Dublin and yeah. the league in Dublin and things yeah. like that. So But I think, it, yeah, really... I think I think the key for me is as you know I was just gonna uh, mention there is that said you know the role of the goalkeeper is very much uh, a specialist um, side of the game Um, but there's not many coaches with all due respect that have enough knowledge and understanding of the game to actually coach and develop the goalkeepers Um, you know in the UK there's myself and maybe one or two others that have that depth of knowledge and are able to deliver courses deliver workshops to develop the goalkeepers to the levels required um, so from my point of view, there's not enough done um, in terms of, you know, creditable qualification. So when you look at FIFA, UEFA, you know, even the, 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 the federations of the countries, there's no specific qualifications for goalkeepers that you can actually go and do. So you can't yeah. go and qualify as a goalkeeper coach in futsal anywhere. You know, from my point of view, I think that would be wonderful if, you know, a group of coaches could get together to actually come up with an accredited qualification so that we could, you know, assess coaches, make sure they understand the game to the relevant levels and then give them the accreditation in terms of the qualifications required to then actually go out and teach those skills to the goalkeepers of the futsal world. You know, that's something I've been very, you know, forthright with and I've been trying to sort of push, you know, all the time I was involved with the FA and the England setup. Um, but it always fell on deaf ears. And from my point of view, I think it's a, it's a missed opportunity and something that is, if it was um, you know, possible to happen, I'd be very much at the forefront of that and would love to make it happen and be part of it. You know? But who knows? Perhaps somebody will listen to this, hear of my idea and uh, contact me and uh, see if we can move it forward, take it forward, so that more coaches can actually understand and learn about the role of the goalkeeper in futsal and then go and teach you know, the, the generations to follow in the future. That's it, because it is a game for all generations. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think it will be, it will be, it is such a brilliant game and it will be, it will be great to see it on the same level as 11 aside football. I know it, it is professional in, in a lot of, a lot of countries, but yeah. I suppose maybe there isn't as much awareness in, in some countries or it's not played everywhere. Like we say, 11 aside is so it's just I suppose kind of increasing the I suppose you know setting up of clubs I suppose in yeah. around the in, the in the different countries as well so um, yeah. but I suppose really to finish off uh, for, from your own point of view what are your plans for the your plans and ambitions for the future going forward yeah well obviously I'm heavily involved in the women's game at the moment here in England so I'm the head of goalkeeping at Birmingham City women in the the professional league uh, in England, the WSL. So, you know, I get to uh, develop um, one of the best goalkeepers in England at the moment, Hannah Hampton, young 20-year-old goalkeeper. So she's got a a bright future in in England. She's part of the England squad at the moment. So, you know, I really enjoy that on a daily basis. And we we get to play the likes of Arsenal, 
um, Man City, Chelsea, Man United uh, in our league. So it's a fantastic league and it's wonderful for me to be involved in the women's game, which of course is growing you know, rapidly you know, in the UK, but across the world now, which is, which is brilliant. Um, I also work um, for a, a local non-league side, Solly or Moors. I work in their football and education programme, so I develop some of the young goalkeepers there. I've got my own goalkeeping academy here in, uh, in Birmingham, where I live. So I enjoy um, sharing the knowledge with the youngsters of the local area. But from my point of view, I, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I'd love to get back involved in futsal, of course, as I mentioned already. The FA have now uh, stripped the funding of, of um, futsal in England, uh, you know, at uh, international level. So in terms of coach development and, and being involved in the player pathway here, I've had to stop that at the moment because there is no funding um, for that. It'd be wonderful if somebody could, um, you know, grab the baton and take it on um, to bring futsal back to a high level in this country. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to get back involved um, with the sport here in the in England in particular. But I think in the future, you know, lockdown um, over here in England, it, it taught me a few lessons. And one of those was that we've had to adapt the way in which we we share our knowledge and we deliver our message and, you know, things like these podcasts and, you know, I've done a lot of Zoom yeah. webinars and, and Skype calls and, and, and shared my knowledge with so many different people. And, and literally at times I was delivering webinars to hundreds, sometimes thousands of people that were, were linking into what we were, were sort of delivering on the goalkeeping um, in terms of goalkeeping development. So I think the future for me, I'd like to carry on doing what I'm doing for about another 10 or 12 years physically. But I, I think it. what the future will hold for me is, is more of a consultancy role and, and maybe doing more remote um, learning and sharing more more knowledge remotely through the internet. And uh, I think that's a future. That's where I see myself being. But I think that's where I actually see coach development going, is uh, that it will be more remote. And uh, I think COVID is going to play a part in, in the way we, we coach for many, many years to come, yeah. That's it, and hopefully with uh, you know if, if you're interested, maybe we, we can make this uh, uh, maybe a fortnightly thing. You know, giving updates and seeing how things are going on on your end from the I suppose from the just the general goalkeeping yeah. uh, in eleven aside and the futsal side. So maybe maybe that's something we we could do uh, going forward as well. If you're yeah. interested in doing that, and it, it it also it's it's also a great way of. Raising awareness of futsal and maybe cool. maybe through listening to uh, podcasts as well that might uh, encourage or cause interest in other people maybe to take it up as well like maybe the local side or maybe you That's know it. someone people could set up leagues or something locally in each town or something like yeah. that and yeah. wouldn't that be a great thing like yeah, going forward I'm not saying it would be just single handedly us like doing it but no. uh, you know it's it it'll be part of it I'm sure there'll be other people that would. Would would be able to do it as yeah. well, and it, it yeah. would it would grow help to grow. What is it? What is a great sport already? It would, and I'm more than happy to share the knowledge. You know, at the end of the day, no you know, if we if this is something that we want to do regularly, I'm more than happy with that. Um, time yeah. permitting, of course, I'm a busy guy, but um, I'm more than happy to try and find the time to do it. But I think it's it's more about just bringing awareness to the sport itself of futsal, um, in particular the role of the goalkeeper because that's massively important, and I'm. I'm kind of a little bit biased on that side, of course, being a goalkeeper coach. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm more than happy to speak to to individual coaches or to even set up chats with uh, with with groups of coaches or even clubs, you know, just to spread the yeah. word to 
give them more awareness and knowledge around uh, futsal and the role of the goalkeeper. And uh, I think the more more awareness we can get out there, the better it will be for the sport. And that's a fantastic thing. That's it. Well, listen, thanks very much, Tony, for uh, for taking the time out to do the interview with us. And maybe, yeah, we, we will uh, we'll do it regularly, maybe mm-hmm. fortnightly or monthly or whatever. We can discuss that later on anyway. But listen, th- thanks very much for taking the time and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and thank you and uh, stay safe, everybody, and I'll uh, speak to you soon. Thank you. No problem. Thanks very much. Uh, that was... Tony Elliott, um, a goalkeeping coach in both the Levin side and, of course, futsal. Hello, Joe. How are you doing? And you're well, welcome to this week's um, sports management podcast. So, I suppose um, we we can start off. We're going to be discussing transfers um, this week, and uh, there's a lot of activity around uh, at the moment, isn't there, Joe? Yeah, it's a very busy time at the moment um, because the transfer window opens at the beginning of January and it lasts for the full month. You've got to do quite a lot of prep work beforehand in terms of looking what clubs are looking for players, what the requirements are, checking if the players you know, would be happy moving there. And there's all sorts of logistical things to look at as well. So it's quite a busy time. That's it. And it also it's also important, I suppose, not only about the player that a that a club wants, but also you know the style of um, the style of play that the player is suitable to. Like, I mean, do, it does it suit the way the club play? You know, the style of football and e- even down to the tactics that the club plays. So, I mean, the reputation of the player is one thing, but it also has to it also revolves around things like that, little details like that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's the big thing as well is making sure the club they're going to, like you say, play the right style of football that fits in with them. You know, the manager looking, is he on rocky ground? Could, you know, because you, you could go to a club and after a few games, the manager could be shown the exit door and then you've got a player there that a new manager might not fancy and there's all sorts of different ramifications and things you really need to make sure are right before, you know, you can progress with any kind of transfer to a new club. That's it, and as well as that, there's also, um, you know, so for for young players, the the fact of getting trials with big club with clubs as well, like we said, the bigger clubs in in the league in England as well. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So we've got a couple of players who are contracted to clubs at the moment, but their contracts are coming to the end in the summer. So it's a case of trying to look at what options are out there for them. Because they want to progress to their hungry players. They want to push themselves and, and, and see how far they can go. So it's getting the right balance between aiming too high and then not getting game time or not playing at the right level where they don't feel challenged and, and don't develop as much. Because, again, it's just get, trying to find the right balance between game time and, and the challenge that they face at the club. That's it. And, of course, it's... Uh... Not only about it's not only about like does the player fit the club, but also the club has to fit the, what the player is looking for, and things like that. And I suppose really, you know, another thing that can 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 decide things as well will be you know what the player's history is with regards to injuries and the types of injuries and things like that. That can also uh, 
be a big factor as well. But usually, you know, if a player is good enough and, and they look after themselves and they're, they're fit, you know, th- there shouldn't be any problem with uh, it. shouldn't be a, a factor in the player, like maybe not go, not getting the transfer or the transfer not going through. Or I suppose me- the, then there's the medical end of things as well. You know, the, the medical, which is part of, uh, which is done before signing a contract, all these little things as well. Yeah, that's it as well. Again, you need to look at the clubs as well because there could be, you know, climate things. If you've got something that's going to a country that's a lot warmer than we are, or a country that's a lot colder than we are, <clears throat> it all impacts on if you've got a previous injury or muscle strains, you're more susceptible to cramping during games and dehydration, things like that. So, so many things you have to consider when when looking at, at a new club. And like you say, with the medicals as well, there's quite a lot there. You need to make sure, you know, any niggles and, and the players are looking after themselves every way possible so that there's no problems that crop up when you get to the final stages of, of a deal. That's it. And there, there's also the factor of, um, you know, I suppose in the current climate as well with COVID and all that. And I know that there's the whole thing about the vaccine and things like that. But there's also like players arriving from different countries or players going from England to Ireland or other countries as well, either coming in or leaving leaving um, England. You know, with the whole thing about that, with the, the COVID virus, you know, with the, um, you know, does a, does a player have it or did a player have it or what, you know, that, that plays a factor in uh, the medical end things as well. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So again, a couple of the players that we have are looking at options in Europe and further afield. So it's difficult to know because some leagues have been put on hold, other leagues have resumed again. And and then there's all the different things with even Brexit as well. So um, the, the rules are changing about players coming from abroad into England. It's going to be like a, a scoring system and various different formulas that you can apply so so many things up in the air that if you are looking to play in Europe or further afield it's just that much more difficult to get the deals done that's it and there, there's also like the thing of very young players maybe you know <clears throat> teams abroad now that they might see a very talented young lad playing for a club over over in England and they, they might want to buy them. Now, it is very daunting for a very young player that has never been away from home or never been outside of England to go to a, somewhere that's a whole new culture. And I suppose that's that's the help that she offers as well. Like, that's what, um, you know, help them to settle in. And, you know, because they're away from family, they're away from friends. There could be the language barrier. There's all these things for a, a player that's very young from, I suppose, any from 17 or whatever upwards. Isn't that a case? Yes. Bad players that have, have looked to go abroad. And what we do with them is, is we do a lot of work beforehand in, if a club expressed an interest in a player, I would obviously make the player aware and say, you know, this club have expressed an interest. But then I would do a lot of homework myself in terms of looking at, what the club can offer in terms of a support network. So will they give you the transport to and from, you know, somewhere to stay, meals? Is there going to be somebody at the club that can help you settle in? Is there somebody assigned to Is there other people at the club that, that speak English? Are there other English players there? Um, so that you don't want the player to feel isolated in the middle of nowhere because they're not going to 
be able to give their best because they don't feel the best. So before, again, before we go down the long road of negotiating a deal, I'll say to them, right, this is what the club can offer. This is what it's like to live there. This is the cost of things. This is where you'll be staying. It's this far from this city or just to give them the full picture. So then they, and then through talking with them and knowing them as a person, you can then gauge if what the club can offer is going to be something that they can do for one or two seasons or if they're going to struggle after a few weeks, like being homesick or, you know, feeling isolated or things like that. That's it. And uh, there's also the thing of, you know, with players that, you know, that they have, um, you know, they might, they, they need to feel, they need to feel comfortable and things like that. And, you know, it's, uh, I suppose really you could sign, um, you could sign the player or the player could might sign the, sign a contract and then after a couple of weeks or something, maybe they, they find that they're not settling in, but they've, uh, they've uh, a contract signed and, uh, you know, there, there's little, there's little, there's little things like that as well. And, but I, I suppose really with regards to contracts, as you you know, as a man that deals with these things as well, uh, we all, we all remember the, the Bosman ruling that, you know, when the player is coming within six months of an, of an end to his, his or her contract that they, you know, they have the right, you know, even if they're offered a deal, by their current club, they they don't have to accept it, and in that case, there's nothing really the club can do, unless they can sweeten the deal beyond. But some players, maybe they're at a club, and no matter what the club offers, they just don't, they're not unhappy. I suppose an example of that will be uh, Paul Pogba at Man United. Now, um, apparently, he's very unhappy. You know, obviously, that's probably down to to game time, and he just wants to get away to another club. And uh, you know, I suppose. You see, he he um he was in the club as well at youth level, and then then he went over to he went over to Italy, and then he came back to United. But then since he came back, then there's been a few changes in management and things like that. But things just don't seem didn't seem to be working out for him under an Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer. So um I I don't know what his contractual obligations are, whether he's still under contract or what the story is but that you know that these little things can play and play on a player's mind as well yeah i think there's a lot going on there behind the scenes isn't there in terms of what he wants or what he's being guided by really because it's a difficult one isn't it i mean if he was playing eight nine out of ten every week you know you could justify him wanting to move abroad but you know back to PSG or, or Barcelona or Real Madrid, wherever he wants to go. But his performances, you know, he has one good game, many average games. He's out with injuries. He's, he's here, there, everywhere. And it's just, it's not what Man United need at the moment, I don't think. So I think if they can cut, if they can get somebody to, to bid for him and, and, and he can get that transfer away, the player's going to be happier. And I think the club will be a lot more happier as well. But that's it. But it, it also like his performances or lack of due to whether he's playing or not or not playing that much. That can also affect his transfer fee as well. So they, you know, you might buy a player for we say we say fifty grand, but if he's or fifty million, but then like I mean, if he hasn't been 
making the appearances or if his form is poor, then that'll affect, he, he, they could end up, they might, they might want to get rid of him or he might want to go. Um, but because of his performances or lack of appearances, you know, they might only be able to get 30 million for him or something like that, you know, so that, that could come into play with him as well. Yeah, I think with the money side as well, with COVID, I mean, there's a lot of clubs that are on the verge of oblivion, like Real Madrid, Barcelona, they're absolutely broken. They've not got the money anymore to go out and, and buy these players. So I think the market will reflect that in that a lot of... Because normally you get one or two big deals in the transfer window. And when that big deal goes through for the, the club that sold the player, they've then got a pot of money and they might go and buy three or four players with that money. And it filters down. But I think with less and less big transfers, like big money we've seen in the previous two years or so, I think that will have a knock-on effect where the, the deals will be smaller. A lot of players will stay at clubs to run their contracts down so that they can move to Barcelona. It might be a year or two later, but they can then get a lot more money because there's not a big transfer fee involved. So there'll be a lot more Bosmans, I think, in the next year or two. That's it, isn't it? That's it, and of course, there's the there's the question of the wages as well, and um, many other aspects, and I suppose sponsorship, you know, potential sponsorship deals and things like that, depending on the, um, I suppose, depending on what the the deal is as well. So there's, uh, I suppose, play, players have to factor that in. But then, of course, there's the the other opportunities depending on the stage that a player is at. I mean, if he's coming towards the end of his career, he'd be kind of seeing, well, like if he goes to another club, maybe that is it worth going to another club to play a few seasons. But then again, if he does that, is there coaching opportunities or is he as well off to kind of stay at the current club and they, they might give him, they might, uh, well, I suppose he, he'd have to be doing his uh, coaching badges anyway um, from, from that end of things, uh, you know, the, UEFA B license, A license, and then the pro license before he'd be able to get that. But uh, you know, I mean, if a player has been long term at a at a club, his chances of securing kind of his coaching badges at that club might be better. Well, yeah, that's that's the big thing that we look to do is with players that are at all stages. We would work with a player and say to them, "You always need to plan for your future." So, you know, you don't know next week. You know, you. Obviously, you, you don't wish this to anybody, but they could suffer a bad injury and that's the end of their career. So we always say to the players that you should have a plan of what you want to do after your career finishes um, and then start putting the, the building blocks in place to, to get where you want to be. So a player might think, I want to move into media work. I'd like to w work in coaching. I'd like to move into this area, that area. So we can work with the player to start getting in touch with people in that field that they're interested in just to get a feel for it and see if it's what they want to do. Just so then they've got a plan because you see it all the time, players that finish playing, if they've not got a plan in place, they miss that day-to-day -day contact with the players. They miss the routine. They miss the feel of the belonging. So what we try and do is get something in place where they've got something to focus on beyond playing so then there's not that hit of suddenly you know it just all stops what do I do now where do I go 
that's it. And of course, look, looking at uh, you know so, someone that I interviewed last week there uh, for the first time there, Sean Barrett, uh, very a UEFA a UEFA B license going for his UEFA A license and hopefully his pro license. And uh, you know, I suppose he he, he from a, from talking to him it was very interesting because you know from an early age, obviously his father played for QPR and that, so it was always going to be in the genes that he was going to follow his dad into playing football but you know he, he played for several clubs and that and then uh, he, he developed an interest in coaching as well and uh, he did well he got his FA level one and level two and then he's he got his uh, UEFA B license and he was saying he's working on his UEFA A license and you know hopefully that'll take him on he was saying to the uh, the pro license so there's a great future for him in the game because he's still, uh, in coaching terms, he's still a very yeah. young yeah, yeah. Uh, coach, I suppose. And uh, so he has loads of potential and plenty of time to work on all those. And who knows what could happen, wh- where that would lead him in the future. Exactly. Yeah. So he's, he's done it the right way in terms of he's had a plan. And uh, once he's retired from football, he's got into the coach and he's got, he spent the extra time in, you know, doing the groundwork of actually coaching players, but then doing the, background stuff of, of, of getting the badges as well so that obviously all that hard work he's put in will pay off in the future as you know develops and works towards the UEFA license and things like that so yeah definitely really promising future there and how, yeah and how do you find him to work with he seems from, from what I was talking to him he, he seemed to be a very nice guy and as I'd imagine a very easy client to work with from, uh, from, from your yeah, point of view. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, because we talk, we speak every day, you know, not necessarily in a phone call, but it could be through a Twitter message, WhatsApp message, whatever. We're constantly in touch looking at different options that are open of, you know, other clubs he can work with or other things that we can do. So we're always in touch. So he's a really, you know, good guy to work with, really positive guy you know and I say got a good future in, in the game as well and I think it's key as well when you're a coach too uh, he seems to have the right philosophy uh, some philosophy and the right ideas when it comes to how he how he handles players and uh, I suppose that the key was that he started off with kind of underage teams as well and kind of worked up to a first team which is good because then you you, you get to learn about all aspects of coaching then uh, from all Exactly, angles. and as well, um, listening to the podcast, well, it was good in terms of the flexible approach he has to games as well. So, you know, I've worked, when I played football, you know, you work with coaches and they're quite rigid in, in their approach to the game, but it's just the same week in, week out, you know, and, and you can see things aren't necessarily working out, but with his approach, see, it's flexible where he will use the analysis, he'll look at the other teams, what strengths they've got, what weaknesses they've got, and then work with the players he has to formulate a plan of how best to try and win the game. So that's what players like as well, because they know that the, the squad has got, rather than just having the same bog standard formation with the same players week in, week out, the squad will know that he will pick a team that will be able to win that game using the right tactics, the right players, all the strengths. So that I think that's what squad likes. It's not that's it, say rigid and boring and stale. It's it's different all the time. Yeah. 
That's it. And of course, uh, for, from his point of view, like, you know, you, you pick your, sometimes you, you, if you, as you were just saying there, you can, one coach will just have the same tactics week in, week out. And right, bar injuries or um, yellow, you know, suspensions, they might have to change one or two players due to those. But, uh, you know, tactics wise, regardless of whether personnel changes or, ta- you know, they'll still stick to the same, t- the same tactics. But, uh, as you said there about Sean, it's good that he kind of he cha- he can change the he can change the style or the tactics depending on the opposition yeah. as well. But I suppose <clears throat> looking at that too, if you have a standard way of, of playing the game, uh, sometimes and even if you have if you think you have the tactics right and you have the right personnel and you're playing well, actually during the game. It's key that you're you're able to spot the switches that you you make either like a player moving a player from one position to another, you know, as regards tactics or we say having to make tactical substitutions as well. And uh, he seems the type of guy that's that that will be good. That's good at spotting those kind of things as well, which is key. Um, you know, because sometimes these things can have to be done under pressure. Exactly. Yeah. That that's it. The the, the top managers they're the ones that can watch something for 50, 60 minutes and then they can just make one or two changes, tweak it slightly and it's done. And I remember the best example of that was, uh, I think it was Tottenham versus Juventus in the Champions League and Allegri, you know, it was like a, a nil, I think it was nil-nil, a very tight game and then Allegri made one change, like 60th minute, three minutes later, so he changed the player, changed the style, five minutes later brought a different player on, changed the style again and they got two goals quite quickly, and then that was it, game over. You know, Tottenham couldn't do anything at all. And, and you know, that, that shows that the guy had a plan, and he's tweaked it slightly, carried out his, you know, his plan of how he wants the game to go, and they secure the victory, and away they go. So that's what the top top bosses do, really. That's it. And on uh, tomorrow, I'm doing an interview with with another one of your clients, uh, Javi Bravo, uh, a goalkeeper based in Spain, and uh, very good. I've been like doing my research into him, and I've been um, you know talking to him online, online and different things like that. Seems to be a very a very nice guy. Unfortunately, he's uh, he's out he's out of contract or whatever, and he's looking for another. Um, another club as well but uh, you know a goalkeeper is kind of a very specialized position and I suppose what are the differences of from your point of view uh, between kind of finding um we say goalkeeper a goalkeeper new clubs a new club and an outfield player is one easier than the other or are they about are, are both of them same kind of ease are they both easy enough or, or have they got uh, they both got equally difficult and easy kind of um, things when it comes to finding a player, a goalkeeper or an outfield player. Uh, yeah, I think club. with that, with goalkeepers, the, the nature of their position is that a goalkeeper could make 10 really good saves in a match. And then one of the shots could be a really straightforward one. It could bobble over his hand in the goal and the team lose one nil. Now, they won't remember the 10 saves he's pulled off. They'll remember that one mistake. And the thing with a goalkeeper yeah. is that, you know, if you make a mistake, 99% of the time it's punished with the other team scoring a goal. So with clubs, again, they only normally have 
two, maybe three goalkeepers of the senior age, and then they'll complement that with a couple of the youth goalkeepers. So it's more difficult in that there's less opportunities. So clubs normally have a regular number one and a backup keeper that they're quite loyal to. And then it can be difficult to get goalkeepers into clubs. But then by that by that same nature, though, again, by checking through football results, are struggling. If you look at teams that aren't doing so well or conceding a lot of goals, you can normally have conversations with the clubs, with the goalkeeping coaches, and just say, look, I've got this goalkeeper here. You know, he's been working hard, he's training, he's sharp, he's fit, ready to go. This is what he can do. And you, you try and get them to go in for some work with the goalkeeping coach and just see how he compares to what they've got. And, and that's a good way of securing a deal for the goalkeeper. That's it. Because, I mean, really, I suppose a, a good example of goalkeepers will be um, looking at Quevin Kelleher, a, a Cork lad. Um, he's, been at the, he's been at Liverpool for a while. Very few opportunities. He's been doing well at reserve level now, I have to say, because um, I've been following uh, following him. And, you know, he is kind of the third, or he was up until recently, the third choice keeper. He's still very young, but, uh, you know, it's, he, he got his chance ahead of Adrian last week against Ajax, and he, he played spectacularly. He was, he was absolutely brilliant. And then as a result, then he actually nailed his place for last week's game for Sunday's match against Wolves. And, you know, he hadn't as much to do maybe, but he still, he was still solid when, when uh, you know, still, I suppose, you know, tell, keeping the defence in line and um, directing them on what to do and things like that. And uh, I suppose when you compare that to Adrian, you know, he, he could make a brilliant save, but then he could make two, one or two uh, or three howlers as well. And it's, you know, there might necessarily be a keeper's fault. It could be like a defender that hasn't, that wasn't covering back on time or whatever. But um, still, like it could be a, a goalkeeper, the goalkeeper could be miss kicking or maybe, you know, different things like that. And, you know, as a, as a result, now he's he's gone down to third choice goalkeeper. So it just goes to show you what can happen with keepers. But fair play to Cuevin Kelleher for such a young guy. He's he's uh, getting successful really quickly. Yeah, he's he? doing well. Yeah, I noted that he played in the the Champions League game, and I think it's good that he's given the chance to play. Um, because that that's the thing though. You know, he's a big club like Liverpool. He's learning so much working with you know top quality coaches, top quality players at the club. So it is good that he's he's given the chance and trusted, and he's shown what he can do, and that he you know he's one for the for the future really. That's it, and of course he's a modest sort of a lad as well. The way he comes across, um, you know, in in his interview after the game, um, after the Ajax game, and even like in the press conference after the the Wolves game, like he he was saying about the defense in front of him and and things like that as well. So. It's great to see him. Great to see him doing well. So I'm, but uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. The uh, Bravo. He's um, hopefully, um, hopefully he can get a, a club very soon because he seems like he seems like a nice guy and he seems honest. And from you know from what I've read up about him and the research I've done, he seems to be a very good goalkeeper. It's, but I, I suppose that's just the nature of football, really. You know, um, 
it's you know the it's down to whether a manager likes you. You could you could be the best goalkeeper in the world, but if the, if a manager doesn't take you, I suppose that's another exactly. Thing. I mean, he's got he's got the right approach to in terms of you know like you said there, you know, he's a brilliant guy. He's great to talk to, um, professional. So aside from being a good goalkeeper, he has all the attributes of what you'd need at the club. You know, so he's, he's a team player, and he's approachable. You know, he's always got a smile on his face, works hard in training. Um, it's everything that you need, the complete player, everything that you need. You know, Javi Bravo has that in terms of, he would be an asset to any club that would sign him, really. That's it. And hopefully, hopefully he'll, um, he, he'll find, he'll find a new club soon. Have there, have, have there been any offers for him or any clubs interested in him so far? Or is he still waiting yeah. for that? I mean, when I've spoken with, with clubs in, in Europe, there's been interest in him, but then they can't really commit to anything because some of the leagues were not playing or they say the money, the budgets, and, and they're just waiting until the transfer window opens to see where they're at in terms of if a player leaves, will they have this budget? If they sign this player, will they need this? Will they need that? So... You know, there are clubs that have expressed interest and spoken to us, but they can't commit to anything yet because they're just, it just, it, that's how it is at the moment. Nobody can say for certain what's going to happen. It's yeah. just makes that a little bit more difficult at times. That's it. Well, hopefully, hopefully he'll get a, he'll get a contract in a new club very soon. And I'm sure even though he's without a club at the moment, I'm sure he's still training away with a, a local side or something like that, just to kind yeah, of keep himself keep it sharp. fit and, and training and things like that. Yeah. And, um, of course, just to let, let people know, um, this Saturday I'm also going to be doing um, an interview with another one of your clients, um, Joe, or um, someone that, that works with you as well, Alessandro, a sports psychologist and... Uh, you know, the method of uh, sports psychology that he uses is very interesting. So um, that, that'll be another uh, interesting one. And we'll, t- we'll talk about that further in, the, in uh, next week's in Yes, next that's week's great, podcast. yeah. No problem. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, that was uh, George Epcot. And he is from, he's the CEO of 442 Sports Management Group. And of course, they are also our uh, AR Sports Therapy Clinics um, official sports partner. Thanks very much for that, Joe. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yay! Hello, Luke. How are you doing? And uh, welcome to this week's League of Ireland chat, where we will be talking about, uh, we'll be reviewing the FAI Cup final, and also we'll be looking back on 2020. So, hello, Luke. How are you? How are you, Aidan? How are things? Not too bad now, not too bad. Yeah, it's a, a very busy podcast this week. You know, we're we're t- we're going to be looking back at the um, the FAI Cup final. Um, uh, another cracker, as it always is, between Dundalk and uh, between Dundalk and Shamrock Rovers, and just like previous finals with these two, went to extra time. Yeah, well, when you were so used to seeing that, now it was a it was a great game in the end. I thought um, Dundalk probably deserved winners. Um, thought they were a much better team on the day. So, uh, massive credit to Dundalk. Uh, you have to give credit where credit's deserved. So, uh, it was a massive night for Dundalk Football Club and a, a great 
a great end to a, a great season for them. That's it, and especially when you consider what um, you know what a busy week it was leading up to it. I mean, you know, the previous Sunday there was the FAI Cup semi final against at Lone Town, where they would have got another, uh, I suppose, <laughs> a shooting practice against at Lone Town, uh, where they won eleven nil. Then midweek, then they had uh, they were playing in Europe. And then very little time to prepare for the game against Shamrock Rovers in the Aviva and the FAI Cup final. So, you know, that I suppose that makes it even more, gives them even more credit. Yeah, you have to give the credit to them for that because they've had such a busy few weeks, um, you know, with Europe and that and the league because they had a lot of games to catch up on in the league, especially with COVID and, and then Europe and all that being cancelling them all. So, They've been really, really busy. Um, but in fairness to them, they've got a, a, a nice reward in getting the and getting their hands on the FAI Cup in the end. So, look, it was, it was probably deserved as well. On the night, I thought when I went to extra time, I thought oh, this was Dundalk to win. Like, and when you see down in the hundred sixteenth minutes, you have players like David McMillan making runs like that after such a busy week. Uh, it really shows the commitment that has went into Dundalk this season. Um, and uh, it really, it really shows uh, that they're probably. Still one of the probably still the best team in, in Ireland, but um yeah, it just it really shows the, the sort of uh, commitment levels that have went into Dundalk uh, this season. That's it, and I suppose really both both teams are so so good, they're equally good. So I suppose they were they kind of cancelled each other out, and as a result, it kind of went to extra time. And that's I suppose when when Dundalk came to the fore and uh, actually saw out the game. Yeah, extra time done. Dundalk probably justice to be quite honest. I thought they were the better team, um, and then to even take it to extra time, I thought they could have even won it in normal time to be honest. Uh, especially in the second half, they looked like a different team than the first half. Thought Rovers were probably a better team in the first half, but Rovers just didn't turn up. And um, when you don't turn up in cup finals and big games, you get punished, and and they were punished. But you can't really take away from what they've achieved this season and and uh, the levels that they they played throughout the whole season. And I suppose it is apt that both of them got to the FAI Cup final because I suppose Shamrock Rovers won the league and uh, after a great performance, then Dundalk won the won the cup. So neither team are trophyless at the end of the year. And of course, the season isn't over yet for Dundalk because they still have uh, they still have uh, Europa League to to look after, and uh, they're at home to well, they're in the Aviva. Uh, taking on Arsenal, which uh, you know, I suppose that's uh, I suppose when you compare the Aviva to the Oriel Park, it's a bigger and wider pitch, and maybe that that might. Do you think will that help um, Dundalk, or are they used to, used to just playing in um, you know playing in the Aviva? Yeah, no, I don't. I look, it's hard to tell, really. I think it might benefit Arsenal a little bit there, uh, playing on a bigger pitch, and because Arsenal will want to play that. Nice expansive football, you know, and uh, I think it probably will benefit Arsenal a lot more, you know, because um, Dundalk obviously are used to the Oreo Park, but they play. Uh, when you think about it, Dundalk have played in Aviva a lot lately, so you could kind of say it there. Yeah. Their second home, really. So, um, look, it's a nice way to finish off a great season, you know, playing against Arsenal. And ah, uh, look, they're probably not expecting an awful lot, but that's a nice way to finish it um, and to go out and really enjoy yourself and embrace it, you know. That's it, and I suppose looking at. Uh... Looking at the game as well, where where did you see things going wrong for um you know why the reasons why Dundalk or Shamrock Rovers didn't show up on the day you know compared to 
compared to Dundalk, like the, their performance. I know we, we were saying there that, um, you know, Shamrock Rovers were, were very good in the second half, but uh, Dundalk came, came, uh, came good in the second half and took it to extra time. So what, what things do you think that um, Shamrock Rovers need to look into and improve on? I know they're a good team anyway, but I suppose it was just kind of on the day. Yeah, on the day, I probably I thought that Dundalk were the better team. Um, it shows that there's not much of a gap between the two teams. I know if you look at the, the league table, like you'd, you'd probably say there is, but there really isn't because they're two absolutely fantastic teams. And um, I'm sure they're going to push each other even more next season. It's great to have that, that these two teams are pushing each other continuously. But um, Shamrock Rovers will be really disappointed with how they played uh, on, on Sunday there. So... Uh, they'll be really disappointed with with their performance, and um, it just wasn't them. Just it just they just that they just didn't look themselves. Um, a lot of players went missing for them, and they'll be really disappointed about that. But uh, look, you have to kind of take that and just move move on now, and and uh, start building now to next season, and even making it a better a better season, um, than this season. Not that you'll you could get much of a better season, but um, they'll be pushing to to stri- they'll be striving to uh, make it make everything right again, and uh, and win the league again, and even go for the cup again, and try to get into Europe, you know. Um, but that's what Shamrock Rovers will be after. So, ah, look, they won't be too disappointed, but um, a part of them will still be disappointed with how they how they fared um, against Dundalk the other night. That's it. And I suppose, really, when you consider that Dundalk have played in Europe and got to such high heights uh, playing, in, playing in the group stages of the Europa League, you, you have to say that there'll be a much, much improved... Not that there weren't a, a good team already, but that this uh, this playing in the group stages would have brought them on an awful lot as regards to you know what it's like playing against top top teams. Yeah, it will bring them on. It will bring them on definitely, and and uh, they'll go again now for the league next season. I'm sure that they'll want to win it. Uh, they'll be disappointed with their league form actually this season. Dundalk will be uh, a lot of silly drop points that they'll be really disappointed about. But look, that they finished in the top uh, top three, so um they won't really complain too much. But it's been a, it it has been a it's been a it's been a you know what I mean a a good season for Dundalk if you look at it really and um, it's been a, a really good season for them uh, getting to the Europa League so obviously uh, it was a massive credit to them for that and winning the cup then in the end so um, they won't really be complaining too much about that but they'll just want to improve on their league form now next season. That's it, and you'd like to think that they'd maybe like get something out of the. <laughs> You know, even a draw or something somewhere, you know, before the finish of their their Europa Europa League uh, campaign, that they, you know maybe they get some sort of money, and they might be able to invest that and buy buy some more players and that, and uh, you know just to improve. Not not that it's a very, not that it's not a, a top quality squad already. Already, but um, I suppose that the thing with Dundalk is now all the players just want to tie down there and get their contract sorted out, which. Uh, one of the players uh, over the last two days was kind of saying to the owners, "Listen, we want our contract sorted out, and maybe you know if that was do- if that was done, then there'd be a- the players would be a lot more settled, knowing that their their futures are settled for the next X amount of year or X amount of years uh, going into next season." Yeah, that's it as well. Like they want to, um, they want to hopefully get a point now against Arsenal and. I know we've seen a lot of talk about players wanting to get contract signed because there's a lot of players. Uh, I looked at the PFAO transfer list and a lot of Dundalk players are on that because of no contracts. You know what I mean? And and they're going to be without a contract before the end of this, uh, next season. So they don't want to get their deals done with Dundalk, and I'm sure there's going to be they might even end up losing out on a few players. I know Pat have been interested a lot 
in some of their uh, key players. So they'll want to keep a hold of them for next season, you know, and, and then hopefully uh, keep building on that. That's it, and uh, you know that's going to be that's going to be very interesting, and I'm sure it'll be a lot closer in the league, um, possibly with uh, Dundalk and uh, Shamrock Rovers being in the top two, whichever whichever ones, whichever team will be on the top or finish on top at the end of next season. But that's uh, that that's a good bit away yet. But um, you know, I suppose it'll be closer next season because they as we said there. Dundalk would be better and uh, they'd be a lot sharper I suppose when it comes to playing in the League of Ireland again so it, it makes for a very interesting season so I suppose really going on to part two of it is is uh, looking back on the year that was 2020 very um, I suppose makes kind of a season really when you consider A you know due to COVID guidelines there was no fans allowed in stadiums and then there was that uh, three or four months gap between their first couple of games and um, recommencing it. And then, of course, it was shortened as well because not all all the games would have been able to be fitted in. And then, of course, the second lockdown. So it was very, um, although no, in the second lockdown, they were able to play through it because it was regarded as an elite level in Ireland. Yeah, it's a very difficult year, really, uh, for everyone. Um, I'm sure that a lot of teams will be disappointed with how how their league planned out, but then you're, then again, you're going to have um, a lot of teams uh, absolutely thrilled with, with how it planned out for them. The likes of Longford Town, Draw the United, um, Shamrock Rovers, Dundalk will be happy. So there are four teams that will be absolutely delighted with how, how it planned out for them um, in the end, really. But it's been a it's been a mad year, to be honest, um, for League of Ireland football. Um, it's probably a year that no one has ever really experienced and hope that won't experience ever again and that hopefully now for next season we might be able to get some crowds back in and, and get like a 36 game season or 35 game season um, so that we can have the full year um, for for League of Ireland football so there's no gaps in between because then you have to fill the gaps and it's, it, it really is not worth the stress so um, hopefully that we'll be able to get, the, um, get it sorted again and get a full season in you know and it's not half season or Three quarters a season, like we really, we really, we really need a a full season, um, because uh, it has been missing the League of Ireland this year. Like you're seeing, anything can happen over eighteen games, really. And um, with Cork getting relegated, really stands out. Like you wouldn't have thought, it. and maybe they wouldn't have thought it if if uh, if they sort of had of been a more games. So it didn't it didn't really help uh, an awful lot of teams, but it did in the end help some teams. So uh, some some teams will be happier than others, really. That's it, because I suppose really it's been a mixed bag and you see that the way things went that, you know, there was a couple of games, next thing there was the um, there was the lockdown and then players came back. But because of the, the long layoff, it meant that uh, players had to, you know, that clubs had to get their, their, you know, there was no such thing as a rest or anything. It was just, you know, week after week. And uh, of course... You know, it was very hard, especially for the the clubs playing in Europe and European qualifiers and, and, um, you know, Europa and Champions League qualifiers and this, that and other made it even harder. And, of course, as a result, then more likely for the players to get injured. Yeah, it's been very difficult for probably the bodies more and less, more than that, really. And and even for the clubs who are part-time, you know what I mean? Like, these players have jobs and and then they're going to play and then they're going to train and... Like that can be really demanding. Also, like if you had a hard, hard had a hard work day of work, and then you have to go and train and that, and then you have a match then on the Friday or something. It is it's difficult, you know. 
and um, especially with all the games and such a, a quick period of time, like was was very difficult for everyone. And um, but I think everyone sort of coped with it well. Um, I think that we only really had some problems with COVID come towards the end of the season. So when you look at it, it's been we we were quite quite uh, we done things quite well. If you really to be honest, uh, compared to some other organisations, but definitely the League of Ireland have uh, done really well this year and 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 getting it. Um, sorted so it's uh, it's COVID safe and all that you know and it has been I think every club has has made some uh, great approaches to it I've been to a lot of clubs uh, this season uh, after the lockdown you know um, but it, you can see that some that these clubs are doing really well and that they are uh, they're, they're dealing with COVID really well that's it, and I suppose that we we will split it into two now, and uh, we'll discuss. I suppose the player, the teams that sort that stood out and played really well, and the player, the uh, clubs that need to kind of push on and improve for next season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, what, what were the in the in the Premier Division? What ones? Uh, what teams stood out for you? I suppose obviously Shamrock Rovers and Bohemians played very well, and. Uh, well, what what are so there's the the teams that stand out and the teams that need to improve. What are those? What are the teams in each category? Would you say for in the Premier Division? Um, I'd say obviously we've met, you've mentioned Shamrock Rovers and Bohemians. Um, Dundalk will feel disappointed. They'll want to uh, up their league form really. Um, but when you think about it, um, Sligo Rovers now getting into Europe is fantastic for their club. So they're a team that really stood out for me. Um, teams that need to improve, um, Cork and Shells really like Shells, sort of fell apart in the last in in the latter stages of the season. So they'll be really disappointed with that. And Cork just, you know, they'll they'll be, they they know what they have to do now. They need to rebuild. Um, you know, the glory days are over there. That's it, and I suppose uh, you know, go, going into the first division then as well. Um, obviously, you know, you you work with um, you you work with them. Um, Draw the United as well. You're involved in the the club doing uh, the media, the social media and things and all that. But also as a, I suppose as a Draw the United fan, that it must have been really a, a great season that you you got promoted. You got promoted as well. And I suppose that the other team that the other teams got that got promoted as well. But I suppose a disappointment, a disappointment. For uh for Athlone Town, but uh you know I suppose the the introduction of a, a new manager and he he really picked them up and I suppose really maybe the the position they finished in doesn't reflect how well they played because I suppose in some games they played really well but just couldn't uh, just couldn't get the wins at certain in certain in certain games. Yeah, when you look at it, um, I was obviously um delighted that Jordan got to win the league and got the promotion, probably what the club have deserved over the last three years. You see all the work that's gone in and um over the last three years and, and failing, you know what I mean? We failed for two years um of slipping up in the playoffs against Finn Harps, but uh, that night down in uh, Stradbrook will live long in the memory because you're seeing all them players who had been there for the last three years and getting that promotion that they probably deserved, like they did deserve. I thought Drada were the best team in the league. Um, that like last, I thought Drada were the best team in the first division, so um, definitely, but Athlone, you know, as well, um, they've had a difficult season, to be honest, with new manager and that coming in. So, look, uh, there was a lot of games that they played really well. Like, they played really well against Drada twice and they bet Drada and, uh, in United Park and 2-0 and then they drew 3-0 with us down in, in Athlone that day. But, look, they probably would have thought they could have won that game as well. So, Athlone will be really, really um, 
really pleased with their season um, and again getting to the cup semi final. Obviously, it didn't end well for them, but um, they they know that they they should be really proud of themselves. Yeah, so I suppose there was other te- other teams like Cavan Healy and that. You know that it'll it, it'll make it it'll be an interesting uh, season next season, and I suppose depending on what players are brought in and what players they can renew contracts for, it should um it should be good next season. It'll be I say it'll be kind of exciting times for uh, at Lone Town next year as well, like because I'm sure that they'll be looking to tie up the players' contracts as well, and as we said, I, I Adrian Carberry will be looking to um. I suppose add to the squad as well, uh, bring bring extra talent, uh, more talent, to the club as well as bringing pl- a few players up from the academy as well because it's a good old production line. They have they have a they seem to have a good academy down there and it's uh, hopefully it would be great to see that going from strength to strength. Yeah, it would be definitely. I know they've signed a ex Strada keeper, an ex Galway keeper, and ex Sligo keeper, uh, Schillingerman. So that that's a great sign in there, you know and. They'll be um that's that's a that's a real experienced Premier Division sign and I think uh, he's a quality player so um, that's a good sign of that loan and I'm sure they're gonna add to that and be interesting now to see who they can bring in you know um but you know um massive uh, credit has to go to that as well but uh, Adrian Carby will be looking to add to what he uh, what he has you know and and uh, tie players down that and keep the squad that he has. That's it and of course we we couldn't we couldn't. Um... End this uh, this podcast without mentioning. I know it's slightly off League of Ireland, um, but you know, Quevin Kelleher, a, man, a Cork man, doing playing, doing great things at Liverpool, and it'd be great. To, it's great to see him putting in some solid, but solid performances. A great performance, some brilliant saves against Ajax in Europe, which would have boosted his confidence no end. And then another solid performance. Well, I suppose. <laughs> On Sunday against Wolves, he hadn't really that much to do, but when he did have it, he uh, stood up, and you know there was nothing, there was nothing dodgy about him. Considering the the guy that was number two, Adrian, like you know he was busy in in games and all that, but you know he could he could pull off a brilliant save, but then he could uh, let off a clanger and and let in a, an easy goal or you know a goal maybe that he should have saved. So for 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 Quevin Kelleher to kind of leapfrog Adrian and and be first choice goalkeeper while while Adrian is out or while um while the first choice keeper Allison is out that that must be a huge boost for him and I'm sure he'd be playing again uh, tomorrow night in Europe as well in uh, in the midweek clash in in the Champions League. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Quevin Kelleher was absolutely fantastic. I thought against Ajax, uh, some amazing saves and then another. Another solid game against Wolves. Uh, two clean sheets in two games. He'll be really pleased with that, and it's a very, it's a confident booster for such a young fella, you know. And um, he'll want to, he'll want to add to that. Um, like obviously he knows he's not going to be the first choice keeper ahead of Allison for uh, for now, but he knows, you know, if he can get a bit of experience under his belt now, and then, like I still, I still maintain he should go out on loan and get first team football before he comes back to Liverpool because I'm sure he has the aspirations of becoming Liverpool's first choice goalkeeper and Ireland as well, because I don't think he'd be far off that, to be honest. Um, so he, That's it. He's, he's doing really, really well. And uh, hopefully he can continue to build on that. And then hopefully uh, he might even get a loan deal, you know, that in the Premier League that might benefit him. But it just really depends on him. And, and uh, you know, it's great for Irish football to see. That's it, because I suppose really... 
you know, we all know that the quality of goalkeeper that Darren Randolph is. He made one or two mistakes over the last couple of games for Ireland, but like you could really say now, being a former keeper myself, that that you could nearly put that down to rustiness because he hasn't been playing really for the for, for he hasn't been first choice at it at the club at club level, you know. Yeah. So it's very hard when you're not first choice and then you're still being brought into the international into the international team. I suppose. The reason for that was uh, really with Kate, they probably thought Quevin Keller was kind of too young or whatever, and maybe maybe he, maybe uh, Darren Randolph was the only choice we had really that you know with, with good experience. But now this would uh, the last couple of performances, and if Quevin kind of play keeps playing like that, then he he has to be in Stephen Kenny's foot, you know, in his uh, radar for playing him and at least getting friendly games, if nothing else. Yeah, especially now when you look at who we got in the World Cup qualifiers and that, he'll be wanting to get into that squad um, when we play them in March 2021. Uh, he'll be wanting, I know he's been in the Irish squad um, just like on the bench and that's so all. He'll want to get in there number one, you know, for when we play the likes of Portugal and Serbia, you know. Um, so yeah, it's a great opportunity for him to really establish himself and that's why I still maintain to go out on loan because you know, like, you're not really going to get your an awful lot of game time at Liverpool right now, especially with Allison, you know, because uh, Allison's such a great keeper. But um, you know, Cleveland Gallagher will be will be um, looking forward to seeing what he can produce, you know. And I'm sure everyone at Liverpool is. I know that the manager rates him really highly, and um, I know everyone at the club rates him really highly. So uh, it's great, really, to see. But now with the qualifiers, the World Cup qualifiers coming up, I know we found out a draw yesterday. So um, it's it is it, it is exciting for him, you know. That's it, because I suppose really, if he stays at if he stays at Liverpool, his only options will be like maybe FA Cup games and um, League of Art or you know uh, other games, you know the League Cup and yeah. things like that. But you know to really to really get experience, he needs to be playing a lot, like week in week out, for as you said, either a lower down Premier Division team or even a, a Championship team. And uh, you know, then w- when he returns, if that's what ha- if that's what does happen, which, like you outlined, there would be the best thing for him for his development and to help him establish, and I suppose to be be worthy competition. Which I suppose after that he would be for for Allison, but Allison would always be the first choice, even when he comes even when he comes back. But um, he'd be a he'd be a more of a a naval deputy than Adrian, I suppose, at this stage. Yeah, he's definitely like I'd say. I rate him. I rate him highly higher than I'd rate Adrian. I just think Adrian has too many mistakes in him. I can't really see why Liverpool actually brought him in in the first place. But um, too many mistakes inside Ad- in Adrian, you know. Um, but Quevin Keller hasn't really done anything wrong yet. So long may it last, hopefully. And um, you know, he's he'll be playing out tomorrow night. Um, I know I seen it that he should be the first choice now tomorrow night. So. Um, wishing him all the best in that and hopefully that he gets another clean sheet and um, that they that he can um, push on then That's it and and the good thing about him is with him being in goal and I suppose he would have learned a lot from Alisson in this respect would be uh, leading the line like you know the, the keeping the back four in check as well along with uh, along with these two experienced centre halves I suppose um, you know he's not afraid to, to to tell them where to tell the defenders where to be at certain times if need be like you know when balls are when the ball is coming in high or whatever like he's he's very confident at coming from the ball coming for the ball he's not afraid or you know he's not hiding or anything he, he's taking responsibility which is great for such a young keeper 
And, uh, you know, as he said himself, the back four that are in front of him, they kind of make the, the decisions easier for him. And that he, he said that after the Ajax game, considering that the quality of team that Ajax are, you know, just great to see, great to see that when you consider the uh, defenders that Liverpool have uh, out of the squad at the moment due to injury. But uh, it was good to see Trent Alexander-Arnold back as well. He... he um, Played, he was brought on as a sub on Sunday as well. So, uh, you know, it's great to be in, uh, for him to be in a team like that. I mean, Creven um, Kelleher. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great for him. You know what I mean? It's great for him on a personal level as well. But he has, he really has helped Liverpool out lately. So, uh, long may that last, as I mentioned. But, like, he just needs to, he needs to keep grounded. You know what I mean? He needs to stay grounded and he needs to really just focus on himself and, and, and putting in the, the shifts uh, every game. You know what I mean? He is, he's, he's confident. You know what I mean? He, ha- he is confident. He has confidence on his side. He has time on his side. He has everything going for him at the moment. So, uh, hopefully, he'll be able to just keep that going. You know what I mean? And then uh, you'll never know what where that can really take you then. That's it. Well, listen, thanks very much um, for doing League of Ireland chat as we look back at the uh, the FAI Cup final at the weekend. And uh, we, we did a review of uh, League of Ireland 2020. And we'll talk to you again next week. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks very much. No problem, thanks very much. And that was... Hello Tommy, how are you doing? And welcome to this week's uh, The Sideline Ball. And uh, yeah, I suppose really looking back on last weekend, both All-Ireland semi-finals went more or less as, as we thought. Um, you know, a steamroller of a, a win for Dublin. But I suppose really the, um, the scoreline actually did reflect how well Cavan played, though at the same time. It didn't know. I think really, if you look at the game last Saturday, I mean, Kevin came down there to Crow Park after a, a massive year in Ulster, and I suppose really in the first few minutes, they 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 got a few scores against Dublin. Look, and in fairness, Dublin never panicked. Look, and I suppose at halftime, I think it was twelve seven, and they came out in the second half and they they went into overdrive. Look, and in fairness, look, the score and look in the finish was one twenty four to twelve points. Look, and. Dublin showed their 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 class and fairness look, and I mean the Dublin sh- showed why they why why they're worthy of the Ireland champions favourites. I mean in fairness, like from number one to number fifteen, look, I mean they were played attacking football. They played very defensive football. They were outstanding, to be fair. Would Would you say that it would it be fair to say that maybe, you know, the Cavan were were the only team really that could give give Dublin a game, even though they won, even though Dublin still won very well. That, you know, Cavan are the only team that really put up to them this season. Well, I was expecting a lot more from Cavan to tell you the truth. I was actually small bit disappointed with Cavan. You know, I thought from winning Ulster, I thought the football in Ulster would be very strong, and I thought coming on the back foot of winning them an Ulster title that they would give Dublin a, a better performance. But no. They came out and they, they got a couple of scores, as I said, look, and the next thing, you know, they went in at halftime and they came out in the second half and really, really Dublin took over in the second half. And in fairness, like, I mean, Dublin's sixth appeal is undesirable. Like, in fairness, no, they're, 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 they're really on course for the sixth in the row, to be fair. That's it, because when you look at the game, in fairness to Cavan, they did, um, they did stick with Dublin more or less for the first 20 minutes of the first half. But it's very, very few teams that can stick with Dublin at, uh, and uh, see out, you know, kind of right to the end, with the exception of Mayo, I suppose, a couple of years ago and maybe Kerry to a, cer- a certain extent last year, actually bringing them to, bringing Dublin to a replay. But apart from that, you know, that Kevin didn't do, do too bad, like they, they did their best. But I suppose 
Dublin Superior Fitness um kind of saw you know there was just no there was just no keeping keeping up with them at the you know on Saturday night. There wasn't really. They looked to be a different level. No disrespect to Cavan or any other team that they've met this year. And I mean, if you look at Dublin this year, it's the first time in 45 years that a team hasn't left in a goal in a championship. They've left in no goal at all, lol. So it just shows you how defensively they are set up. And I mean, if you look at their scoring averages, I mean, they've given out over nearly a 70-point beat to teams they've met in the championship this year, which is a phenomenal to be truthful to you. And I suppose really that that can be attributed uh, a lot of the time, I suppose, to the kickouts as well. Um, you know the Stephen Cluxton's kickouts as well. They've been they've been accurate most of the time. Maybe there might have been one or two that kind of went astray uh, throughout yeah. the season, throughout the championship. But other than that, it, they've been bang on the money. Oh, they've been bang on the button. I mean, and in fairness, like I mean, look. I suppose really if you people are starting to panic now, they're starting to talk about Dublin being at a different level and maybe they should split Dublin in two or do this or that. But I mean, I think Dublin are playing the perfect game at the moment. Like they have it down to a fine art. They're playing superb football. As I said, Cluxton, every ball that goes out, he you know, it's been one outside and they, they, you know, they have not really wasted the ball. They haven't got really very bad passes, they haven't got really very shady play. I mean, if you ask me to pick something out about Dublin that 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 that's What's their weaknesses? I couldn't really find the weaknesses with the way that they've been playing in the championship. I think going forward, I think they will be very, very hard to stop in the final year. And I mean, if you look, if you look at some of the Dublin players there, like I mean, Cluxton there, Fitzsimons, McCaffrey, you have McMahon, you have McMinniman, Keane O'Sullivan, and Macaulay. They're going for their eight All Ireland medal. And I mean, if you look at Dublin, they won in eleven, they won in they won in thirteen, they won in fifteen, they won in sixteen, they won in seventeen, they won in. 18, they won in 19. It's their eight all Ireland final in, in 10 years. Like, it's a phenomenal record, in fairness. Like, and I mean, people will say to you that they're too strong in this and that. I mean, if we go back to 1975, you're the great Kerry team. If you go to other sports, you're the great Arkell, you're the great Shargal, you have Lewis Hamilton in, in, in the rally driving, you had Muhammad Ali in the boxing, you had Rocky Marciano, modern day, you have Katie Taylor. In fairness, you had Diego Maradona and you had the Manchester United. You had them all dominating the sports. And I mean, in fairness, in the last couple of years, and I know, look, that the Kerry have been caught and they've made mistakes and they've managed mistakes. But in fairness, I mean, Dublin are going for six in a row, look, and they've been a joy to watch. It's been truthful, Joe. That's it. But I mean, in fairness, a lot of people are saying throughout the country about, oh, well, you know, Dublin have too much money. There's an awful lot of money being pumped into Dublin GA and into the county board and they have this, that and the other and it's population. But I suppose really, like I pointed out as well to someone during the week there, that's, uh, you know, I mean, Cork has, you, you could nearly say the similar population to Dublin. They have. And, and, uh, yet, they, and yet they haven't won an All-Ireland since 2010. So, I mean, that, that that's that argument out the door. It is. It is. I mean... I mean, money money doesn't buy success, Aidan. I mean, if you look yeah. here in Dublin, if you look in Dublin and you look, I mean, Dublin, like, they have they have, they have 29 All-Allens. They're going for the 30 All-Allens. Kerry have 37 All-Allens. They're a football in county without anything being true. They, they'll still fight. They'll still produce the players. Dublin has always been there on the football down through the last 30 or 40 years. And look, relatively, in the last couple of years, they've been dominant. Look, and look, they, have won a, they haven't won a minor title since 2012, I don't think, when they beat me in the final. Look, they, they, I mean, they keep on finding the players and for every player that retires, they have someone to fit their place straight away. Like, I mean, in fairness, 
look, no team has done, they're breaking all records. No team will ever do what they have done, look, in fairness. And I mean, there's great credit due to them, in fairness. That's it, because I suppose another thing, you know, about the people saying, oh, it's all about money. I mean, you know, there was always money in Dublin, you know, I mean, pumped into the senior county team and the, the, the intermediates and under 21s and minors and under 16s and all that. But when you, when you look at it all, though, I mean, they won it. The one, um, the one there, uh, you know, the one in All Ireland in '95, and then it was like, you know, you could say it was what another fifteen or twenty years before they won the, you know, before we before they won the their next All Ireland, which was in in 2011. You know, so, and that was I a mean, long time, say, right? It, 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 yeah, that's. I mean. And even though even though money was still being pumped in, maybe not to the extent centers now, but I mean they, they, they still had players coming in incrementally over those years, and that's what made the the first All Ireland uh, panelists. But you know the back in twenty eleven, unfortunately against yourselves, I suppose it was uh, yeah. In, in fairness, it was. But I, I think the the biggest fact I think really which corrected Dublin football and it showed them where, where what they need to do was I think. In 2009, on the bank holiday Monday, when Kerry beat him by 17 points, I think there was a general meeting in Dublin the following week, and they said they will never again be beaten by a team like that. They got their act together. They brought in the underage sector. They put in a few quid into the sports. They produced all the players coming through, all development. You look at like Connor Callan there, he's never been on the losing side. You look at Brian Finton there, he's never been on the losing side. You look at all the other players coming through there, Mac, there today, and Munchen. They keep on producing them, and they're getting the results, Aiden, and they're getting the results. That's it. And you, you look at two players now, certainly that stood out for me, that played very well in the championship this year was Robbie McDade, as you just said, but also also Bugler as well. He had a great season, oh, he, a great championship for Dublin he, he, as well. It's it's frightening if you look at this if you look at their, if you look at their squad. Like I mean, if you look at if you look at the last couple of games, they're like Dean Rock has been on fire. I mean Keon Kilkinney's been on fire. The players you've spoken of there have been on fire. Fenton has been on fire, the smalls have been on fire, McDade has been outstanding. From 1 to 15, they had been outstanding. I don't think there's any of the players in the championship this year that's given a really very poor game to be truthful, Chuck. That's it. And I suppose looking on to the other, the other semi-final, um, very, very uh, bad weather for the, the game on Sunday, Mayo versus, uh, Mayo versus Tipperary. And, uh, you know, I suppose the RT uh, commentary team there, they were kind of wondering would the game go ahead at all. But apparently on pitch level, it, it it was perfectly fine, but uh, you know I know a lot of people are saying about uh, Mayo's Mayo won it very well, they won it by thirteen points. But when when you look at the chances that Tipperary had, I know they were kind of wasteful, but they they had a, a, another couple of gold chances, and maybe you know if they had taken the I know they scored three, but they also had a few more chances that they missed, and maybe if they had scored those, it would have been an awful lot closer. In the first in the first minute of the game, Max. Sweeney and Quinn Levin, they had a goal chance each in a minute, which you know, which should have went in. And maybe hindsight is a great thing in looking back. But I think maybe if the goals had went in, but in fairness, like in fairness, if if you look at Mayo, I always thought that Mayo had a good defence. But looking at Mayo's defence from last weekend, they leave in the, the River Shannon there so open at the back. I mean, it's a worrying thing going forward, like. To Mayo against Dublin in the final. I know. Look, in fairness, that Killian O'Connor was outstanding the last day. Look, in, in fairness, he got four. He got four goals and nine points, and there was a few more player, players played well. 
I put in fine in fairness. You'd have to look at the scoreline and they finished five twenty. Like and in fairness, they left in three thirteen. I mean, three thirteen would win you an awful lot of games. And I mean, give great credit to Tipperary this year. They they won the Munster, but I I think really in fairness that Mayo were too strong from the last day. But if they misses that Tipperary, you know the chances that they got would have went in would have been a lot closer game. But I mean, on the aspect going forward to meeting Dublin in the final, I mean sincerely, Mayo will have to have to tighten up. Being truthful, Joe. That's it, because I mean, if Mayo, if Mayo uh, defend like that against Dublin, Dublin won't let them away with uh, with what the, you know, we say, you know, the uh, the um, Tipperary missed missed the chances that they they could have got. If if Dublin get those chances, they Dublin or Mayo won't get away with that. They'd be uh, they'd be severely punished and. Uh, you know, especially from freeze now, if, if they give away silly freeze in scorable areas, you have Dean Rock there. You know, you have uh, they're they're like a powerhouse coming forward as well. And you know, even you seen um, oh Merchant, he was cornerback and he was able, he was coming forward and uh, you know making making uh, runs forward as well. But that's because he had someone. If he was coming forward, there was always someone that tucked in. Uh, to allow them to make those forward runs, but that's frightening. That's uh, you know, that they can attack at that pace in numbers and but still get back if uh, if they give the ball away, which which very rarely happens in when when they're attacking. You're a hundred percent there on what you're saying, and you know I'm really disappointed with Mayo. And even though they're in an All Ireland final, I've seen Mayo in the past. There in the last couple of years, I thought they were a lot stronger. They were a lot tougher. They defended. They gave it their all. I mean, in fairness. The last day, they looked very, very wide open. They missed some silly chances, in fairness. Do you know, I mean, going into all Ireland final, you know, they're going to be huge outsiders. And as, as you said about this Dublin team, you know, even from number one to, to number 15, any player that can get the ball, they can go up the field with it, they can hang on to it, they can score, they can go back like there's a house on fire. I mean, they're playing outstanding football. I mean, Mayo has set not in the light this year, in fairness. Look, they got out of Connacht this year. They played okay in the league, even though they've gone down. But in fairness, they're a fair cry from the Mayo team. They are of old, in fairness, in the last couple of years. And look, in fairness, look, I mean, records. I mean, Mayo won in 36. They won in 50 and 51. They've been in 16 All-Ireland finals. They've lost, lost 13, which is a very, very poor, poor record in the All-Ireland series, you know? That's it, because I mean... Uh... You know, looking back, I suppose when you look at Mayo in the in the Connacht Championship, they they had no real competition. I mean, they played. Um, they played Galway. Uh, Leitrim. Le- That's right, yeah. Le- they played Leitrim. Then they played Roscommon. Roscommon weren't no, really able, even though Roscommon was really. When you look at the score, they weren't that far off them. About what was it, six points? I think in that semi final, and then Galway. Galway gave them gave them a decent game, but still. You know, they just carried over the line. But then once you get out of Connacht, though, it's a totally different beast when you're coming up against the the likes of, uh, you, know, you know, these teams. To even, uh, you know, in fairness, looking back at the, on Sunday, Tipperary overall, probably you could say they didn't uh, they didn't play too badly. Maybe defensively at times they were they were found wanting. But if they, if they had taken those chances, it could have been a lot closer and... Uh, you know, it would have been a lot more worrying for uh, for for Mayo, but you know they they've a lot to work on now. Um, they've I suppose they've what Saturday week is is the final, so they've an awful lot to work on in a short uh, short space of time because 
if they don't work on those and if, if it turns out that they, they played the same because as well as that, it, you know, even freeze, even if they give away a freeze from a long, a long distance out, you have um, you have uh, Stephen Cluxon that can that can put them over. You the kind bar of course, well. you have Dean like, you Rock know, and you have a couple of more young fellas there on the pan that can put them over as well. And in fairness, maybe look, maybe me or maybe after last Sunday, look, I know that in fairness, Killian O'Connell is probably the greatest. He holds the most points and goal scorer in the history of the GA. He's a fantastic player. Look, if they don't win an All Ireland this year, he'll go down as one of the greats that doesn't win an All that doesn't win an All Ireland. But in fairness, I think you'd want three or four Killian O'Connors really to be being having a chance with yeah. Dublin to be truthful to you, you know. That's it. But I suppose, really, on the other hand, I suppose we were kind of knocking Mayo to a certain extent there about their defensive, uh, their their defence on on uh, Sunday. But we also have to compliment them for, you know, how lethal they were up front. Uh, you know, they took all their chances. What five, four goals, and you know, they, they scored four goals, and you know that that's. Uh, you know what that in an all It is like this. They very, scored five uh, goals and twenty yeah. points the last day, like, and they conceded three thirteen. Like, it's a massive score. Like, it's a huge score altogether. You know, but look, the outset all of it this year. Look, it's been a fantastic year. Really, look through these worrying times. Look with COVID, that we could see football. Look, it was great to see Tipperary winning once this year. To see Cavan winning and Stim going forward into Crow Park and stuff like that. And now we have the real arch enemies going up to the, to the final. We have Dublin and we have Mayo. But this isn't the Mayo of old. And, you know, this Dublin team seems to be getting stronger and stronger. They're after producing a lot more players. They have a new manager in Desi Fowl. I don't think, I think Desi Fowl won't be distracted by the debates about we're going for six in a row. I think he's focused now, Desi Fowl, is to get into the final and win the final. And I think it's the same with Mayo. They're there. They're in a final. It's a two-horse race, you know. People have said they haven't got a chance. It's a two-horse race. They must have a chance. But the only thing I will say to you, Aiden, they have to drastically improve, you know. That's it. And I suppose really with Dublin too, they have, uh, you know, their under-21s are in there. They are in the they are indeed, yeah. Against they are indeed. And then, of course, and, and then, and then of course, the um, the minor championship is back. It is indeed, well. yeah. It is that would be very interesting as well. So what are your thoughts on Well, those? in fairness, it's great to see the minor championship being back, you know. I mean, in fairness, the, the Kerry Miners are going to be playing Corky on three. There'll be seven young lads from our own club from Austin Sachs on it. I mean, I was a bit disappointed that they stopped the minor championship going, you know, like I thought they could have held it like they've, they've held the football behind closed doors. I suppose really on hindsight this year, Cork will be trying to win Munster, Kerry will be trying to win Munster, you know, I mean, going forward, I suppose, you know, I mean, I mean, you have to have minors coming through to build a side, but Look at the outside since 2012. They are to, to Dublin. They haven't won a minor title. Kerry has won five. Have won five in a row. I mean, they haven't produced many players over the five in a row team. But it's great to see the young fellas coming through and keeping the interest up. And I think that's it. That's I think it's 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 at underage and at schools and at and at, the, at, the, at that level that they bring the steel and they, they show them how to play the football. It's it's just the, the tactics going forward to make a senior player. And I mean. You have the likes of Dublin there when they keep on winning, they'll, they'll, they'll get plenty more young lads than join the game and they want to play the game. The same in Kerry are winning and it's the same in the Hull and Tipperary are winning or Kilkenny or Cocker winning. I mean, it's a, women, a winning fall and everyone everyone wants to go to, to Crow Park. But look, it's great that we have the football, we have the minor championship back, we have the under-20 championship back and we have the All-Ireland final. That's it. And of course, we, we all know what happened in the ladies' game as well the other day, um, the Galway the Galway um, ladies manager wasn't too happy about the. We all know about the chopping and changing of uh, 
venues on Sunday morning prior to the ladies' semi-final between Galway and Cork. And, uh, you know, I, I know both of them were travelling. I think they, they were in Kinnegad. I think it was changed once or twice. It was supposed to be initially in uh, in Parnell Park. And then, you, you know, it was... Uh, I can't. You can't really blame uh, the ma- manager for being unhappy with the way it was handled because it was very short notice, and you know it was supposed to be in Parnell Park, and then the then the the time of was put back as well. From it was supposed to be initially at half one, I think, in Parnell Park, and then it was pushed back to it was when it was changed to Crow Park. Then it had to be put to uh, one o'clock because of the the Mayo game. Very unfair uh, to be treating teams like that in in such an important match. Now, look, I know it was, I I, I think um, I think Cork were were staying over kind of so, somewhere not not far from from Dublin, but still, it's uh, that uh, you know they, they made the point there that that wouldn't have happened in the men's. No, game. and I guarantee you one thing, it wouldn't happen in the men's game. And I mean, it really upset the apple top for the GA as well. You know, and I mean, going forward, we don't want to see a situation like this, whether it be men or women. You know. I think it was badly handled the situation and it shouldn't have happened being truthful to you and I think you can't blame the, the fans or, or the managers for being upset like this. I think it was the completely wrong call what happened to be truthful to you. Yeah, because I, I suppose really, you, you know, it, it, the, the difference are, uh, look, I know, you see, it was even worse for uh, Galway because they it lost was, us. It, they lost it, the game. It, it was, uh, yeah, to be so. truthful to you. But, you know, I mean, look, in fairness, look, I mean, there's been some stupid decisions and I mean the outset of all this like this shouldn't have happened been true but you like I think I mean whoever made these rules or whoever decided that this should have been here or there I mean the outset and all this it shouldn't have went ahead you know that's it because uh, look, looking at us you know they, they, when they arrived then they only had six minutes to warm up I mean when you get to a ground even in a club even in a club game you'd need more than six you'd need more than six minutes because by the time you know the players tug out, even though I think they arrived tugged out. You know you still you see what in the men's game and in the ladies' games in Camogie and and um fo- and the ladies' football. You know they they warm up for at least ten to twenty minutes like beforehand to to really get warmed up, especially when you consider the weather. You know it was cold and foggy and everything. You know in Crow Park on the day as well. So you know maybe, maybe I don't know maybe if uh, they they were allowed warm up. A bit more, maybe it would have been a different game. You know, they would have been better able for it. But uh, you know, it's uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that it, it shouldn't have happened. And I know, you know, the the made us they made a very very late call, um, to switch. You know, to decide that Parnell Park was unplayable and to switch switch it to Crow Park. And obviously, as a player, you'd love that. But you know, it was very it was very unfair that players arrive and they only get six minutes to warm up and do all the usual things that the, all the pre-match stuff and you know even I suppose from a management point of view you wouldn't have had much time to speak to your players either before the game because of all the all the you wouldn't know well. and as I said look it, it upset the apple town what happened you know and I suppose really the, the, I mean you, you you can go to your training sessions there all along and you know where your game is on and the next thing you know this and you know that but then the arrangements they did they, make changes and I think it, up, it, it upsets the team because obviously they were upset before they got the grounds and I suppose really you know with the, with the length of time that they had, they, they, they couldn't properly warm up. And, you know, look, in fairness, I think it was wrong what happened. Look, and I hope we, we don't see going forward again. You know, I think maybe something that we might have learned from this. I mean, the women should be treated fairly like the men. I mean, if, if it happened to Dublin or if it happened to Kerry, 
or if it happened in Tipperary or Limerick in the Holland, they'd be mauled over. Jesus, it, it'd be every national newspaper and every news, I think, that what happened. It shouldn't have happened. That's it. And uh, you'd like to think that maybe the, the LGFA would have learned from that and it won't happen again because, you know, I mean, you know, really the ship, maybe if there was a pitch inspection done the night before oh. or something where people, you know, where the players would have known where they were starting off early in the morning. I mean, the, you know, the Galway team weren't informed until about half ten that morning, which gave them very little time to kind of change. And I remember there a couple of years ago that we were up in the skiing and Kerry were playing Monaghan and there was a pitch inspection in the morning and they, it said the ground was perfect. Then there was another pitch inspection two hours later and the bus loads, I was staying up there, the bus loads were coming up from the street, they were actually in Dublin, and they called the game off at 11 o'clock. I mean, sometimes these decisions, they can, look, I know you have to be for the safety of the players and all that, but I mean, they, they can make the wrong decisions too sometimes, and I think the, the decision that was made in the women's football, it was totally wrong, being truthful, Joe. That's it. Well, listen, thanks very much for uh, for doing on the side the sideline ball with us this week, and we look forward no to... No problem, Amy. Thank week. you very much. No problem, thanks very much. And that was Tommy Dowling, our J analyst. Welcome back to Sport Pulse with myself, Aidan Raftree. And unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show. We hope you enjoyed what we had for you over the last two hours. And we hope you'll, uh, you'll tune in again next week. Remember, you can always contact us on... 089-430-4496 or email sportpulseshow at gmail.com if you want to be if you want something mentioned in next week or in any future episodes of uh sport pulse or indeed or indeed um raw sports view on every wednesday from six o'clock to seven with myself aiden raffi and martin dunn or on sports pulse just let us know and uh, we will mention them so until then, enjoy all, enjoy all the sports that's on this weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye.